This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. On the show, the 12-year-old contributor to the Hockey Jersey book, a Brampton mum designs a multi-sport helmet for Sikh children and the 10th anniversary of the 360 experience. But we begin with safety concerns on the TTC. Here's Kevin Frankish. Recently, a rash of violence on transit properties in the GTA, both against random passengers and against transit operators themselves, has created an outcry for something to be done. Everything is being talked about, including having more uniformed officers on the system. John uh, Danilo is president of the Amalgamated Transit Union, joins me right now. Hi, John. Hi, thanks for having us today. So, John, outline the problem for me right now, and how serious is this problem? So the problem is is quite serious. It's at a crisis level as far as the ATU is concerned. And uh, as we see the increase in violence, not only in Toronto and surrounding areas, but right across the country. And describe the problem to me. Is it one problem? Well, that's uh, one of the things that we're trying to identify here. Is, and uh, we've seen the uptick in violence not only against transit professionals, but also against the riding public. And it raises the alarm bells at, at an astronomic level. Like, um, we know that uh, pre-pandemic, our ridership has been at an all-time low, but yet the assaults continue to increase as we begin to recover, even though ridership hasn't regained full capacity right across transit systems. Uh, typically, we see somewhere upwards of more than 2,000 operator assaults across Canada. That's more than five per day across this country. Uh, but we've seen a significant increase, somewhere between 7 and 10% increase in violence against our operators. And that does not include uh, the riding public or the passenger accounts. Have we been here before? Or is this something, is this completely uncharted territory? We've been, uh, we've been advocating um, for better protections for transit professionals and transit operators for a number of years. But this is at an unprecedented level. Uh, and uh, we're not sure why it's happening. And Hence our call for a national task force to identify some of the causes and some of the best practices that we can implement to help mitigate some of these assaults, not all, but help mitigate the risk to, uh, to our operators and to the riding public. What are some of the causes that are being talked about right now? Many, many different components. You know, we're talking about uh, uh, mental health issues. We're talking about addiction issues. Of course, the economy is at an all-time low with inflation rates and interest rates at an all-time high, which uh, is further impacting our riders. Uh, They're struggling. Um, So those are some of the things that we see as some of the root cause problems. And then as transit agencies try to recover to pre-pandemic levels and see a revenue shortfall, tough decisions are being made by the CEOs of these transit agencies, and that is reducing service, cutting back on service routes, increasing fares, all things that add um, anger and frustration amongst the riders. And, you know, we're seeing that they're manifesting those frustrations against our operators. They're the frontline people who are the most visible, and those frustrations are uh, are uh, rolling over uh, into what we are seeing as assault. And we're asking a lot of our operators, aren't we? I mean, we, we're asking them to be fare collectors and to uh, be police officers if people don't pay the fare or if they're misbehaving on board the vehicle as well. Yeah, and so those are some of the things that we're advocating for when it comes to, uh, when it comes to this task force. Look, uh, as far as we're concerned at the ATU, 
our our frontline staff are not fair enforcers; they're only fair informers. So we're trying to get them to understand that and practice that good practice. But at the same time, we need to address some of the techniques that those operators can use in terms of uh, assessing mental health awareness, uh, understanding that and identifying when someone's in crisis, and how to de-escalate some of those difficult situations. Are you hearing a lot from your members that they want to give in, that they just want to quit? So we, we've started to see uh, a lot of frustrations amongst the operators. They're expressing concern for their safety, their well-being. Uh, you know, these jobs were traditionally, uh, you know, pretty good jobs, and people were lined up uh, to uh, want to work in the transit sector. We've seen a shortfall when it comes to trying to get the resources, and those that are actively in the positions to now are rethinking where they are in life and whether this is the job for them and whether their safety um, is uh, is being compromised. So we're hearing a lot from the municipal level, the provincial level, heck, even the, the, the national level. We have a prime minister who's uh, chiming in on uh, transit security as well, which is extremely unusual. But are you, do you, are you confident you're being listened to? Time is going to tell on whether we're being listened to. Uh, we've made an appeal to the prime minister's office, as well as the um, federal transportation minister. And just yesterday, we sent out letters to all of the premiers and transportation ministers provincially to try to engage them in a, in a uh, roundtable discussion on how we can move forward and address some of these very complicated issues. The one thing that that I'm sorry to see go is uh, is that that the wall, the the enclosure, the compartment we've put our transit operators in. Because I, you know, I used to love being able to to say good morning to. Uh, somebody as you get on a streetcar or or on a even a subway a lot of the, a lot of the operators leave the doors open and, and and that day of innocence i guess is gone it is and uh you know we have been advocating for enhanced protections when it comes to the driver compartment area uh but that's out of necessity mm-hmm. obviously we we want to try to maintain the customer service element which is becoming more and more problematic have you seen any signs for hope at this point uh you know uh, and if you've heard my comments, mm-hmm. all we keep hearing is the same old rhetoric, and that is, you know, our thoughts and prayers go thoughts to the victims. Prayers. We hope for a speedy recovery. Um, uh, but we're not seeing, you know, transit agencies and, and all of the government putting their best foot forward here. I, I hate when we hear that these incidences are one-ofs or isolated incidents. It is now becoming uh, a very serious systemic problem across the transit industry. John Janino, thank you very much for this time. I appreciate it, and, and I hope that we go beyond thoughts and prayers, and, uh, you know, f- not just for the riders, but for uh, the members of ATU as well. Thank you, and I appreciate your time. All right, John Janino, president of the Amalgamated Transit Union. Next on the feed, are you concerned about the state of our health care, its condition, if you will? According to a recent Leger poll, more than half of those surveyed feel the quality of health care provided these days has worsened over the past five years. 82% are worried about actually getting health services when they are needed. 87% agree that an immediate injection of cash and resources is absolutely necessary, but 56% of Canadians say it's unfair that the provinces and territories have to make up three quarters of the cost of health care services in this country. 
And joining us now is Dr. Kathleen Ross, a family physician in British Columbia and the Canadian Medical Association's president-elect. Welcome to the feed. Thank you for your time. Pleasure to be here. I get the sense from the Leger poll, Dr. Ross, that Canadians are kind of fed up with the status of the healthcare system. What are you hearing? I think this is not surprising at all. Certainly, we're all of us witnessing or experiencing the challenges that Canadians have had in accessing care in the last several years. Five million people without a primary care provider. You know, hospitals are overwhelmed and in the news uh, almost every day. Healthcare workers burning out surgical backlogs, long wait times, these are are all things we're living in real time now. And as someone who is a patient rather than a physician, that would be someone like me and the rest of Canadians listening right now, it's really difficult and it's nerve-wracking to think about accessing health care services. This is a really big problem. From your perspective as president-elect of the Canadian Medical Association, what would be the fix, and certainly not a, a short-term or easy fix, but what would be a long-term solution to this? So I think the time is now to move past identifying the problem. We really do need to move towards solutions. We've had uh, a lot of siloed healthcare delivered across the system, and we're hoping for a more collaborative approach. Uh, in our recent survey, 95% of physicians, residents, and medical students described our healthcare system as sometimes frequently or completely unable to meet the needs of patients. It's, it's time to act. And that poll that you put out, this is CMA recently, as you mentioned, 95% of those asked uh, are supporting what's called pan-Canadian licensure. What is that? So currently we have 13 different jurisdictions across Canada and to practice medicine in each of those jurisdictions you need to go through a separate licensing process uh, which costs time and money and, uh, and limits the ability for people to nimbly move from area to area uh, with a single licensure across Canada that will allow us to, to improve access to healthcare uh, and, uh, and locums and temporary placements. So in layman's terms, what does that really mean? Does it mean that, that, that those who are practicing physicians in certain provinces don't have to jump through hoops in order to practice elsewhere? Exactly. So the example we frequently use is the driver's license. Can you imagine if for me to drive from British Columbia to Alberta, I had to stop at the border, apply for a new license, wait four months and pay a hefty fee, uh, it would disincentivize me from driving to Alberta. Yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. Now, I want to quote the current president of the CMA, Dr. LaFontaine, quote, Canadian patients and healthcare providers are struggling with the greatest health human resources crisis our country has ever seen. Dr. Ross? I absolutely agree. This is amazing, uh, you know, that we're in this crisis. So we can argue how we got here, and none of that's relevant. We have to, to be creative in, in reaching solutions for all of the healthcare providers that we need. 87% of those polled by Leger, which came out last week, that particular survey, agree that an immediate injection of cash and resources is necessary. But 56% say that it's really not fair that the provinces and the territories have to shoulder the burden. They're, they're right now 
coughing up three quarters of the cost of healthcare services in this country. The meeting between the Prime Minister and the Premiers takes place on February 7th next week. What do you hope is going to come from this meeting? And in terms of funding and the responsibility of, of that money, where does it come from and who will be responsible for it? So I agree that we need to actually look at increasing the uh, Canadian health transfer to the provinces to provide better support for, for those provincial and territorial health care systems. But we need to be smart in how we're spending that money. Continuing to throw money at our broken system isn't going to result in anything better. We need to, to look at innovative solutions. Pan-Canadian licensure absolutely will expand the mobility of medical professionals and improve access to care in many areas. But more than that, we need to look at scaling up those team-based primary care models that will allow integrated care for patients where they're at. We need a national human resource strategy to plan for recruitment, retention, um, and also education and incorporating internationally trained healthcare workers into our system to meet all of the needs of Canadians and to accurately identify where the gaps are and to have opportunity for quality improvement in the services we deliver, we need to move towards a national health data system. So it's my hope that all of these, preferably, but at least some of these steps will be highlighted in next week's meeting. Yeah, so it's not just all about the money. The, the Canada Health Transfer is currently sitting at 22%, and it is hoped by by many, including the premiers, that the, the feds will cough up a, a an additional amount of money up to 35%. Uh, but you're right. It's how that money is spent. So who will be bringing to the table ideas about how the money should be spent and where it should go? Would it be the premiers from each province or and territory, or would it be the prime minister and, and the health minister on the federal level? So my hope is that we're all coming to the table with the same processes top of mind. My hope is that we will all be able to collaborate and having these discussions uh, and directing dollars where they are needed most. But the, uh, the ball's got to start somewhere. Dr. Ross, you have been in practice for a while. Uh, your family physician in British Columbia, soon to be the president of the Canadian Medical Association. Congratulations, by the way. Have you ever seen anything like this in, in your years of, of practicing as a physician, the, the healthcare system in its, its current state? And it, for many people, it is inaccessible, it is abysmal, and it is deteriorating. Have you ever seen anything like this before in our country? So I think this is an unprecedented crisis. It's, it's certainly unlike anything we've seen across Canada. In many ways, this has been coming for decades. Uh, aging population, more complex illnesses, uh, more mental health issues, all of these uh, conditions and many more that have, uh, that have expanded through the last several decades have, have required more and more care and more and more resources. So it's not surprising that we're here. Again, we know what the problems are. We need to, to be innovative. We need to look at different ways of, uh, of delivering health care and, and changing our system. You will be soon the Canadian Medical Association's president. What will be some of your first priorities? Well, certainly we've, we've identified our priorities as, as the Canadian Medical Association, moving towards the pan-Canadian licensure, definitely a priority, enhancing and building that team-based care, 
uh, and looking at uh, systems in place that will allow us to, to track what's happening in our healthcare system, what it's costing, where the gaps are, and how we can work together to improve them. So my hope is that we'll set that collaborative goal uh, that we'll be able to work uh, together uh, across across Canada to to meet the needs of Canadians. You know, it's interesting. You you speak so intelligently and so with such expertise, but we're talking about human beings here who are struggling within the healthcare system. People, how about? your bedside manner, if you will, you know, as a doctor, as as a mother, as a wife, as a as a as a Canadian citizen, what will you bring from that part of your life to your new role? So I think at one point or another in our life, we're all going to be patients or caregivers. So that lens, that perspective of what happens in our healthcare from from birth to death, absolutely, I live firsthand as a family doctor. That lens of the patient needs to be at the center, that lens of how would this roll out if it had to be my patient, my daughter, my mother, what would I expect and what would I be looking for? This is the lens that I will bring to everything that I do. Hmm, Well done. Thank you, Dr. Kathleen Ross, the Canadian Medical Association's president-elect. Really appreciate your time on the feed today. It's been my pleasure to be here. After the break, Dry Feb, the Canadian Cancer Fundraiser. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. Okay, it's already the first weekend of February, but not too late to give and to give up, all for a good cause. The annual fundraising campaign, Dry Feb, kicked off this past Wednesday. Here's how it works. You give up drinking for a month, and you ask your friends and family to show their support by pledging money, all of which you then donate to the Canadian Cancer Society. Win, win, win. Here's Susan Flynn, the Director of Cancer Prevention with the CCS, to tell us why this works for everyone involved. Welcome to the feed, Susan. Thank you. What a great idea, and I know that it's been now years and it's been very successful. Why does this work? You're correct. It is the eighth year that the Canadian Cancer Society is running the Dry February campaign. Um, It works on a number of different fronts. helps uh, Canadians challenge themselves to stop drinking alcohol for the month of February, but it also raises funds for the important work of the Canadian Cancer Society. Some statistics on your website. Every three minutes someone in Canada is diagnosed with cancer. Drinking alcohol raises your risk of developing head and neck, breast, stomach, pancreatic, liver, and colorectal cancer. Those are pretty frightening statistics. Yes, in fact, drinking any type of alcohol will increase your risk of at least nine different types of cancer. Uh, And I think what's really interesting here is that over 40% of Canadians are not aware that alcohol consumption increases cancer risk. And why does alcohol consumption increase your risk of cancer? Why does that happen? The um, alcohol, the ingredients that are in alcohol are converted in our body 
So the ethanol is converted into acetaldehyde. Sorry, that's hard to pronounce. Um, and that is toxic for our bodies. So why is alcohol then so readily available, uh, obviously, if you're of age, and, and really people miss the fact that it can be dangerous? Alcohol, I think, is, is embedded in very much socially in the way that we live our lives. Um, and I think, again, uh, many people just don't know about the link between cancer risk and alcohol. I think people are aware of the risks with drinking and driving or drinking while pregnant. Uh, and so we're hoping through drivefab.ca that it gives Canadians an opportunity to try not drinking alcohol for a month. Uh, some of the research that we've done from past participants is that after DriveFeb, they have thought more about drinking less and are planning to drink less moving forward. Uh, so this is why this fundraiser is a great way to raise that awareness and to raise awareness among Canadians who are not yet aware uh, of the link between alcohol and cancer. And let's explore the many benefits of, of not drinking for a month, dry feb. First of all, how does someone who stops drinking for the month, what are the benefits physically? How do they feel? What have you heard from people about uh, abstaining from alcohol for 28 days for the month of February? What changes do they find in their bodies? What we've heard uh, from people is that they find that their sleep improves. Uh, some people said that they've noticed um, an improvement in their skin. People have more energy, uh, are able to concentrate better, and uh, have more time for uh, different projects. So those are some of the top reasons that we've heard. And let's talk about who benefits from the fundraising. We'll talk about the people who are about to be diagnosed with cancer, are dealing with cancer, are, are coming out of and, and in remission when it comes to cancer. Why is this money so important that's raised through the month of February? This is very important for the Canadian Cancer Society. Uh, the funds raised can help make a meaningful difference for people affected by cancer uh, by supporting the world-leading cancer research that we do. Uh, the compassionate support programs that we provide for people living with cancer and their families, uh, cancer prevention messaging, and also supports our work leading healthy public policy change. I also saw that the CCS uh, fund, because of uh, DriveFeb, was able to fund 111 clinical trials and also financially support the best and the brightest uh, lead researchers working on cancer research breakthroughs. Breakthrough is the important word here. Absolutely. Uh, we're the leading uh, cancer research funder uh, in Canada, and the work that we do is very important as we learn more and more about cancer and how to treat it. Not long ago, Canada's new drinking guidelines were released, uh, and the Canadian Centre on Substance Use and Addiction, they were the ones who authored this uh, paper. It was pretty surprising. It, it, some of the, the facts that came through were really, uh, they took people uh, aback. For instance, no alcohol is safe. This is according to the CCSA. They also recommend no more than two drinks a week for men and women. That's decidedly different from the last uh, drinking guideline that they issued. That's correct. Um, and this is the result of more research uh, that continues to happen on the impact of alcohol uh, on cancer risk. Um, the 
findings are consistent with those of the um, of international cancer research organizations and are supported by the Canadian Cancer Society. The the uh, the message being: the less alcohol you drink, the more you reduce your cancer risk. Alcohol-related deaths are on the rise here in Canada. Why is that, Susan? The uh, rise of alcohol-related deaths could be. Con- There's a number of different reasons why that might be the case. Um, certainly, during the pandemic, um, research shows that during the first nine months, Canada's per capita alcohol sales increased by 17.5%. And some surveys demonstrated that 14 to 25 percent of Canadians were drinking more at home. Um, ultimately, this is resulting in um, this is connected to uh, an increase in uh, cancer-related death. And do you think that the pandemic, uh, which we hope is in the beginning to be in the rearview mirror, but did that change drinking habits of Canadians? So it, it, by all indications, it did. Um, it did change some of the drinking habits. However, more research is needed to understand how the pandemic changed alcohol consumption patterns and the long-term impacts of the changes in alcohol use. Dry Feb, I think it's a brilliant idea. February is well underway. How can people be involved? And is it too late to start uh, start stopping, if you will, start abstaining from drinking alcohol for the rest of the month? It certainly isn't. Um, the best thing to do is to go to drivefab.ca and sign up. Um, the website provides all the information and support you need to help promote your um, the fact that you're doing DriveFab on your socials, to engage your families and friends in either participating or at least providing, supporting you, pledging you to uh, go drive for the month of February. DriveFab, it is a terrific campaign, a great way to raise funds and raise awareness. Susan Flynn, the Director of Cancer Prevention at the Canadian Cancer Society, thank you for joining us on the feed. Thank you so much, Anne. The next fundraiser is about helping the young and underhoused right here in York Region. Tina Cortez now with that story. Leslie Sims is the Director of Resources Development, 360 Kids. Welcome to the feed, Leslie. Thank you so much for having me here today. I got to say that 360 Kids has been part of the 105 family for quite some time. But for those who are maybe unfamiliar, Leslie, what is 360 Kids all about? Well, 360 Kids is a local agency here that supports at-risk and homeless youth in York Region. We've primarily been around for the last 34 years providing a host of services such as housing, employment, education, and health and well-being supports to our most vulnerable youth who are at risk of homelessness or are experiencing a crisis of homelessness at right now. And what kinds of services are available for those who find themselves on the street? We focus our efforts in primarily supporting youth with housing options, So we have everything from emergency uh, shelters and housing to transitional housing for young people between the ages of 16 to 26. Our employment programs provide support to young people to help them find and keep uh, jobs in the community. We have educational support through our iGrad program so young people can obtain their high school diploma 
through our iGrad school out of our home-based drop-in centre in Richmond Hill. And then we provide additional wraparound supports to young people, such as counselling, both virtual and in-person, basic needs like food, clothing, um, and uh, hygiene items, as well as outreach and support in terms of gang prevention and intervention supports to young people throughout York Region. Leslie, you know, I'm sure you've heard this before. There are those who think that homelessness is a downtown Toronto problem, and it can't possibly be happening in the 905. You will see a lot more visibility of homelessness in downtown metropolitan areas, but that does not mean that homelessness does not exist in communities and perceived affluent communities like York Region and the various municipalities. What we tend to see in York Region is a lot of hidden homelessness of young people who are being, you know, exited out of the the family home or being kicked out. We have a lot of family breakdown. That's the number one reason why young people find themselves homeless. And so it's um, it's not just a downtown problem. These are kids who are coming to us from our communities, from our municipalities right across the region. And you know, they're coming to us for a variety of reasons. And you just tend to see in the metropolitan area a lot more concentrated um, populations because if you think about in rural, more northern communities where social services such as shelters and agencies like ourselves don't exist, young people have to move and migrate down towards the more metropolitan cities in order to access services and get those basic their basic needs met. We're fortunate in York Region that we have an agency like 360 Kids to provide this whole host of wraparound supports to help young people remain in their communities, get the services and supports that they need, and ultimately either reintegrate with their family or move towards a path of independence. But I can tell you that any day people in our communities are walking past probably a young person who is homeless. It's just that they look like every other teenager that's out there. They just carry all of their belongings in backpacks, and it's not uh, a shopping cart that is the stereotype that you would see kind of in a downtown city environment. What can you tell us about the 360 experience? So the 360 Experience is our signature fundraising event. It's celebrating its 10th anniversary this year. And over the 10 years, it was just a small event that we decided to start hosting to give our community members and people the opportunity to experience just some of the challenges that young people have to face and navigate in York Region when they find themselves without a safe place to stay at night. And so over those 10 years, We've been able to raise uh, $1.2 million to support um, our agency and the programs and services that we offer. And we're celebrating the 10th anniversary this year and planning. um, We've expanded to now include a corporate challenge for corporate organizations to bring teams and participate that way. We have a virtual component and a student challenge that students can participate where you can um, receive information and challenges throughout the night, both virtually but from the comfort 
not really the comfort, but from your, your property dwelling, or you can participate in our regular in-person uh, event and traditional event that we've had for the last 10 years where people actually venture out onto the streets overnight from 8 p.m. until 6 a.m. in the morning, and they visit community agencies, they uh, participate in challenges, and they learn and are educated about homelessness in our community. For anyone interested in learning more about 360 Kids or for those who want to participate in this year's 360 experience, when is it? How can they do that? The 360 experience will be happening on Thursday, March the 2nd, overnight until Thursday, uh, Friday, March the 3rd. They can find out more details and information about the various streams of participation available on our website at 360kids.ca or on our social media channels at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter and LinkedIn at 360kidsyork or at 360kids underscore york. All the information is there on participating, getting registered, and how to fundraise. That's terrific. Thanks so much, Leslie, for your time and for your work. We appreciate it. Thank you so very much for having me on today. Coming up, the hockey jersey book grows the game. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. In rinks across York Region, minor hockey season is well underway. Shaliza Bacchus with How a New Book is Promoting Greater Inclusion in the Game. Many people, myself included, didn't necessarily grow up seeing characters in their favorite movies, television shows, and even books that looked like them. Now, that's all about to change because Scotiabank created the book The Hockey Jersey with author Jail Richardson and 12-year-old Eva Perone, who is a hockey player herself and just happens to be the daughter of broadcaster and CityLine host Tracy Moore. Both of them join me now to talk about the project. How are you guys? We're great. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks for having us. We appreciate it. Of course. We're so happy to have you on. So let's start off talking about the book. What is it about and how did the idea come about? It's <laughs> basically about um, how hockey is game for all and how everyone can play hockey and how everybody comes together and playing hockey. And just to add to that, the hockey sweater was, you know, sort of the Canadian book that you read your kids that were into hockey. It was all about Leafs versus the Habs and having the wrong jersey. Well, the, the hockey jersey, which is the book Eva um, worked on, is all about the same sort of thing, but an inclusive hockey team. And JL, the author, reached out to me to see if my kids would be interested in taking part. I think she envisioned a little girl of color sort of informing and consulting on this book to give her more information about how hockey works and the vibe in the locker room and you even did a video for her. What was oh, the video yeah. on? So in the middle of the summer, I put on all my gear in the backyard to show her like ev how everything fits, how everything goes, you know, the order you put on everything on. So, yeah. And we also, well, you helped a bit with the names, used the characters uh, in the book yeah. so it was inclusive as well as the, the French translation. Mm -hmm. So 
it's a great opportunity. Yeah, it is. It really is. And I mean, I, I could name a million reasons why this project is so important. But I mean, our listeners don't want to hear that from me. They want to hear from you. So why don't you tell us why it's so important? So it's very important because basically like people or like kids like me of color who have never seen themselves represented in books need more books like this to show that they can play hockey too. They can do anything to it, you know? If you can see it, you can be it. And I think it's important for kids to see in a sport that's predominantly white that they belong there too. There's room for everyone. Yeah. And and speaking of that, Eva, so I know you grew up watching your dad play hockey, but how did it feel for you as a colored girl getting into the sport? And let's be honest, as Tracy, as you just said, it hasn't been that diverse over the years. So Eva, how did that feel for you? So usually I'm like the only kid of color on my team. So it's always like, it's always kind of weird, you know, like you're a bit different. I have a good experience, right? Everything's good. Knock on wood. But <laughs> <laughs> like, I definitely like wish there were more representation of people like me in hockey. Cause like, if I didn't have my dad, I probably wouldn't be playing hockey. Yeah. And why do you think that is? Cause without my dad, I don't see many other people like that are people of color playing hockey. So I'd be like, Oh, well, like, that's not exactly where I belong, so I wouldn't even be playing and or even inspired by my dad because my dad had a rough experience playing hockey. So, I like, without him, like, I don't think I'd be playing hockey at all. Yeah, and, and on that note, you know, you mentioned that you had a good experience. Would you have any advice for little colored kids who maybe don't have the best experience? If you don't have the best experience, it's not at all your fault. Like, you should definitely keep playing hockey, keep doing what you love. But, like, if it's something – if if the sport is really like bringing you down, just like switch leagues, do something else. Cause like toxic hockey teams, like that's not a good thing. Like you have to, you have to find your place and maybe like, I know it's like a big deal to switch, but you, you just have to make a change. You have to protect yeah. your own mental health. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an important lesson for you to know. Like if things were not a hundred percent right in her league, we would go to another league. We don't want to, quit hockey yeah. and we've heard terrible things about toxic yep. hockey culture but we want to find a place where they belong their league has been awesome right from the get-go and when it's not awesome if that ever happens then we'll, we will have to shop around for another league so it's a good point yeah and and with that being said you know i feel like this goes so much beyond hockey and tracy i'm sure you've encountered so many things over the course of your career so i feel like this opens up a much broader conversation as well yeah, I mean, these kids are not immune to everything their father and their mother has gone through. And the conversations that we have in the outside world are conversations that start at our kitchen table. So we don't hold issues of race or gender or inclusivity away from our kids. That kind of stuff is discussed in the house. And I think both Eva and her brother have a pretty good sense of who they are and how the world works without stripping them of all their yeah. innocence. They, they get it. I, I think these are conversations everyone should have with their kids, not just black people, not just brown people, not just Asian people. White folks need to speak to their children about how the world works and how their kids move through the world so that they understand their privilege. They might understand their socioeconomic privilege like my kids do, and they can understand how they can make space for people who do not look like them to be in those spaces. So it's, yeah, it's a, it's a much bigger conversation, but I like the fact that this isn't a children's book about hockey because it might open the door to so many people uh, to talk about this sort of thing. 
Yes. And I love that you're bringing that up because I think it's so important to have these conversations regardless of the color of your skin. You know, this is the world we live in now. And I love that this book is taking those strides to diversify the world, really. Absolutely. Well, we got to start somewhere. And I think education is always a great place to start. We're all big book lovers in this house, oh, which yeah. is why we're so proud of her. We have over a thousand books. We yes. have, yes, we have a lot of books in this house. <laughs> I love that. You see, we can't forget how important books are. Yeah, books are crucial. The fact that I, I'm hearing like school boards are getting in touch with me saying, oh, we just got our hockey jersey book and um, libraries, little free libraries. It's, it's really important that we get the information out in a fun way that will make it enjoyable to learn about inclusivity. Yes, I love that so much. And Tracy, how does it feel for you as a mom getting to see your daughter take on something like this at such a young age too? It feels good. So I am, I'm proud that she wanted to do this. I don't want to be the mother that's like, let's go, honey, we got to make you a star. Like the fact that the opportunity came was definitely had everything to do about my position in, in television. But the fact that she was offered the opportunity, she took it. She understood that this was something that she should take seriously. And she did take it seriously. And now she's embracing media. I have to keep reminding myself she's only 12. She did breakfast television with me, City Line with me. She did a city news interview. And just growing into her confidence and her maturity as a little girl, to me, is it's a beautiful thing to see. We all like to see yeah. our kids grow and develop, right? Yes. And Eva, you're only going to grow and develop even more. And do you think you maybe might have a career in media like your mom? I actually do like the idea of that. <laughs> I actually do. I have lots of years to decide that, but so far I'm, I'm liking this. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're not, we're not trying to age you or anything over here. I mean, like your mom just said, it's hard to, to remember that you are just 12 years old. You're so mature. You're so well-spoken and you should be so proud of that. Thank you. And you're, like I said, you're an inspiration for generations that came before you and after you. So thank you so much for doing this. And if our listeners want to purchase and read the book, where can they go? You can get it for $21.99 at Indigo. You can get it at uh, hopefully a little free library in your neighborhood. What were you going to say? Hockey free. Well, it's actually being donated to Hockey for Youth, the, oh, yeah. the proceeds, 100% of the proceeds. But you can also go to the Scotiabank website and they will have a URL and you can actually download an ebook copy if you want to do it that way as well. Hey, I love that so much. And before I let both of you go, what piece of advice would you offer to hockey parents and hockey kids and just sports in general of color moving forward? Keep going. It's like, if it's getting too stressful, just think about your love for that sport. And like, it's an amazing thing and it's for everyone. So don't ever get discouraged to not play. And I would also add just for the parents, I think we have a particular level of anxiety with throwing our kids into spaces where they may not be welcome. My advice would be to try it. I am delighted with the amount of lovely friendships, the vibe from the other parents. And you've been doing this since you were how old? Um, when did you start? Like seven ball hockey at six for hockey at seven. Ice hockey at seven. So all these years of meeting incredible parents and in incredible kids the whole time. So it's been overwhelmingly positive. So just try, even though it might seem like, oh my God, it's winter sports. We don't do that. 
try it. I think your kids will absolutely love it. And if they don't pull them out and go try soccer, go try something else, but it's worth trying because winter is long in this country. (laughs) That's for sure. It's definitely worth giving a try. And Tracy and Eva, if our listeners want to follow you, where can we do that? They can follow me on Instagram at the Tracy Moore and they can follow her nowhere because she's 12. (laughs) I love that. Thank you so much. You know, it's actually funny. We were talking about kids and social media. So I just want to touch on that just a tad. Do you think that you will allow Eva to have social media and would it be monitored by you or how do you think that would work? I don't know what to do, man. Like, I think that they have to, I think that we have to understand that we're living in a digital world and I don't want them to be removed from the culture or the common discourse. I want them to be able to interact with their friends, but I want them to have digital literacy, just like we need them to have media literacy. So when we're watching commercials, when I'm reading them, even kids' books, we've been analyzing what we're reading since they were very young looking at commercials. What do you think they're trying to sell us here? Why are they selling it like that? I need that I need that analysis to kick in when they're on social media accounts and you are following people on social media accounts. They just she's just not actively posting anything for the public. She's interacting with her friends with these platforms and when she gets old enough to actually post things, the conversation will have to continue about the responsibility and the accountability of whatever you post on these internets because it's forever and I want them to be responsible citizens and I want them to be kind so it's like it's a real struggle I think for parents but it's an ongoing conversation that started way before any of these digital platforms anyways so it'll just continue to happen thank you both so much for that the hockey jersey you can purchase it now at indigo and Eva you know you definitely got to post about this when you are allowed on social media (laughs) 100% (laughs) Thank you guys so much for joining me. Thank you so much. You appreciate it. Next, One Mother's sport helmet invention for Sikh children, Jim Lang with the design details. Tina Singh is what I would call the ultimate mother. Loves her kids and wants to make sure they're safe as they have fun. But Tina Singh had an issue. Her three boys couldn't get a proper safe helmet to fit their turbans. So instead of waiting for someone to come up with something, lo and behold, Tina Singh designed one herself. And the design, as I can say, is absolutely brilliant. And I'm thinking, why did no one think of this before? And she joins us on the feed today. Tina, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. I, I, I saw the photos for the first time, and it hit me like a ton of bricks. This is so amazing and so brilliant. Why did no one ever think about a design like this before? It's been needed around the world for decades. Honestly, I think that there is, unless you're in it, you don't realize it's an issue. And, you know, there's only a couple of big helmet manufacturers out there. And it's just something that got missed, I think. And, you know, I think parents, they've been through the struggle and their kids grow up. And, you know, you just hope to make it through without an injury. I mean, Tina, this is what gets me. There are millions, tens of millions of Sikhs living around the world. And it's funny to me that a Toronto area mom had to come up with a design that everyone had missed. So when obviously your kids want to ride the bike, you want them safe. What was your first step of thinking, I need to make a helmet for them so they can wear it over their turban, honor their customs and religions, but be safe by riding their bike? Um, so first, it doesn't actually cover a turban. It covers a butka, which is like a small cloth ah. covering. And this is not meant to cover a full turban. It's just for kids five and up. Okay. Um, so for me, it was more, you know, when my oldest son started having this issue, 
and I was digging out the foam out of his helmet and, you know, in retrospect, realizing that was not a good choice. Um, but that was what I was doing to make it work. And finally, about three years ago, I said to my husband, like, you know, it's kind of now or never. We're in it now with our kids. And either I make a commitment to do something about it or, you know, like other parents, I waited out. And I'm glad that I, I decided to take the plunge and actually tried to make it work. So I, I take it you used your, your husband and kids as your, your test market, as you, you know, as your guinea pigs, as you worked around the design? Yeah, so my husband wears a turban, so not him, but my kids. Yeah, my kids have tried on tons of helmets. They're tired of it. But uh, <laughs> they have been the inspiration for the whole thing, and they've been, you know, very involved from the beginning. I'm curious, when you finally came up to the final design and they started riding it, what was the reaction to your sons and their friends? So my my kids' friends were thrilled. A lot of them um, wear butt themselves and keep their hair, so they were very excited about it because this is an issue they face throughout sports. Now, this helmet is just for, you know, bike riding, inline skating, kick scooter, and skateboard. But, you know, even when we think about hockey and things like that, there's been so many instances where they've been excluded. So the response has been really positive from those kids who haven't had an option until now. And uh, my kids themselves, they're happy to not have me nag them when they're trying to go down at the skate park. And they're happy to not have me tell them that they can't do things because they don't have a helmet. Yeah. You know, Tina, I'm a parent as well. And that's the thing is that you don't realize it until you have kids. You're always thinking about their safety, their safety. And if they don't have the proper equipment, you're like, oh, you know, sorry, you can't do this. So I could just think as a parent, it must have been killing you to tell them no up until now. Yeah, it's not even just the no, it's the preparation. You know, you're going to the skate park and, you know, I know my kids want to go down the ramps. I have three very adventurous boys and they that's what they love to do. And I would tell them, either we're going to try to tie your hair differently or figure something else out. Like, there's no spontaneity to that. And it was very, very difficult. And, you know, it's hard to tell them no. But I'm an, I'm an occupational therapist who worked in head injury for, like, so many years. I, I couldn't let them do it without it. No, no, absolutely. And you just can't play around with brain injuries and head injuries. That's one thing we've learned, Tina. You just can't mess around with that. So, to me, this is genius. And, and, and you alluded to hockey. This, to me, opens the door to... Uh, uh, hockey helmets, motorcycle helmets, so many different types of helmets designed this way. I, I think it's a genius idea. Yeah, I, I think right now my focus is just just kids and the sports inclusion. I feel like adults have like adults can make their own choices about safety, but for parents who want options for their kids, I, I want them to have a hockey helmet that fits properly. I want them to have a bike helmet that fits properly. I want them to be able to go to a batting cage and not have to think twice about it. Tina, what has been some of the response from you, from other parents, uh, just uh, not from your background, but other backgrounds in response to your helmet design? So parents have been thrilled about it. You know, they're really excited about having a way to deal with the challenge they're faced. You know, within my community and outside the community, there's been a lot of support outside of the community as well because, you know, again, we realize, other people realize that this is an area that's been missed where maybe you didn't think about it before, right? Again, if, unless you're in it, you might not know. Um, there is, even within our sick community, there has been some response which is less positive. You know, there are some people who feel very strongly you don't put anything on top of a butt or a turban. And again, mm -hmm. I think there was a bit of confusion in the media initially when we call this, you know, a quote-unquote turban-friendly helmet because it's not. Um, it is, you know, it's meant to cover a butt and not a full turban. And so there's a bit of confusion there. But again, for our kids, kids like mine who are already wearing a helmet that just was not fitting them and not able to do its job, we now have an option that's actually going to work and, and protect them. Well, Tina, obviously you're well-educated and, and bright. You're an occupational therapist. So how did you start designing it? That's not your background. That would have taken someone with a design engineering background. So 
did you just trial and error? Did you cut an old helmet, try to, like, what was your process of coming up with the idea? So, really, I just thought about the shape of my kid's patka, or the top knot, the way they're, where their hair is kept. And I, I just figured that the design had to follow that pattern, right? And so, to me, it seemed obvious. And, you know, OTs work a lot in product design, actually. It's not an area I worked in. Uh, but we worked uh, work a lot in like accessibility and universal oh. design for houses, so it felt natural to me. But I did have to enlist the help of an engineer to actually draw out that vision, so that I had, you know, like a CAD file to use that I could take to people to say this is what I need to build. Um, so the vision was there, but I needed some help to draw it out. I did. So when you finally got that in, in passing grade from the international testing company, SGS, what was your response? I was thrilled. That was like the last piece of that I was waiting for. You know, when you change a traditional helmet design, it doesn't matter what you do to it. It still needs to pass those standardized tests, right? So like there's CPSC, ASTM, um, the UK EN 1078, and you got you to gotta hit the mark for that. And so we had to make a few iterations uh, early on to adapt the design that we had. But once we got that, that, that passing mark, I was thrilled. That was the moment where I felt like, okay, I can finally run with this. And Tina, that's those little safety stickers you see in the back of helmets. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah. So inside the helmet, you'll see it, everything comes with a warning label. It also mm. comes with all the passing and certification testing that it's, that it's met. And anytime you buy a helmet, it should have those on there to show that it's met the mark. I know uh, for a lot of my friends, we were talking to hockey going, this is the greatest idea ever. Why did no one think of this? So I would have to imagine you're getting response and requests from other communities around the world. What has been the international response to the helmet? The international response is actually quite positive. There are people, you know, I got an email, actually, I'm going to share this, but I got an email with, from uh, a 15-year-old in Denmark saying, is there any way I can get this before March because our class is going skating and I need a helmet? And so, you know, I felt really bad because I, I, I can't get this kid a helmet by then, but also it's not for ice skating. And so, you know, I think the response has been like, when can we do more? And you know, I'm one person and, you know, with the help of my husband, who is an engineer, you know, we are, we are trying to get as much as we can done and but we're hoping to have an option for for every kid that wants one for so that they're not left out is there a possibility tina of you partnering with another helmet manufacturing company to to utilize your design and your genius uh, to make it a more of a mass produced item we're just so new in this space right now i i never say never i don't know what's going to happen i just know right now we have um our shipment coming in for our initial launch and so we are offering that to canadians first and then, you know, I hope once I get that out the door that I can start working on future future projects. And Tina, what website can people access to get more details about the helmet? Yeah, so you can visit www.boldhelmets.com, B-O-L-D-helmets.com. Um, and there's a spot to sign up for a newsletter so that when we open shipping and uh, purchase options for different countries, you will be notified. Tina, it, it amazes me that you came up with this. And I'm constantly amazed by just everyday people saying, hey, I need a solution. Darn it, I'm going to do something. And you did it. I couldn't be more proud of you and more impressed what you did. And the fact that a, a Canadian mom came up with this for her kids just, I think, is the best thing ever. Tina, thank you so much for the design and thank you so much for, for changing the way we think about helmets for to make sure that it is for everyone and not just words, but actions. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you, Tina. If you missed any part of the feed, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you so much for listening.